This is Karen Chikonsky, and you're listening to Harper Audio Presents. I had the pleasure of speaking with David McCullough, Jr., author of the upcoming book, You Are Not Special, and Other Encouragements. The book grew out of a 2012 commencement speech he gave at Wellesley High School, where he's an English teacher. The speech, in which he encourages the graduates to swallow life whole rather than check things off a list, has received nearly two million views on YouTube, and McCullough heard from people all over the world, and even got a couple of marriage proposals. Now McCullough, who's happily married, by the way, has written a book that can be considered a textbook for life, for kids and parents. 26 years in the classroom and parenting four kids have offered him a front row seat to modern adolescence, and he's seen firsthand how nowadays kids are having trouble recognizing what matters. They're going for the trophy rather than living every moment of the experience itself. In short, they're not looking at their fish. You'll hear about this in a few minutes. His message is a good dose of common sense, written with humor, wisdom, and a little self-deprecation thrown in. McCullough is just as likable in person. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm happy to share it with you now. Well, David McCullough, Jr., thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I was the 2,158,417th person (laughs) to view your commencement speech on YouTube. And off the bat, I noticed a couple of things. The smiling faces of your students behind you, which made me think you must be really cherished. And also the cars driving by in the background, which, given your message, seemed kind of fitting. Um, I kind of want to know how you got from that 12-minute speech to this book that we're looking at right now. Um, I am any teacher. I am any father, uh, and there but for the grace of YouTube is any teacher, any father. Um, the uh, reception to the speech was pretty close to instantaneous and overwhelming. Um, I became uh, international headlines within a few days, and uh, I guess what I said resonated. I really thought I was speaking to those kids before me, and I said pretty much what I say in my classroom all the time. Um, The kids in front of me, most of them, I would say a third of them had been my students at one time or another. Most kids know me pretty well, and so to them it was, yeah, yeah, okay, (laughs) we've heard this again. But the, uh, the, the worldwide reception was pretty stunning. Who videoed it? Uh, A local public access television station sent the camera there. I was unaware the camera was there. What was it like in your house the days following when all of this... Uh, um, I gave the speech on a Friday afternoon. On Saturday, my nephew graduated from high school in another town. And the whole family piled into the car and we drove down to celebrate Jeffrey graduating from high school. On the next day, Sunday, my son graduated from still another high school, and that day was devoted to him. And so by the time Monday rolled around, I'd almost forgotten that the speech had happened on Friday, and I walked into school, and I turned on my computer and checked my emails, and wham! (laughs) And that's really when it began. And by uh, Wednesday, I was being asked for interviews by television people and newspaper people. 
And by the end of that first week, um, I'd had, I don't know, seven, several hundred emails and requests for interviews from all over the world. And marriage proposals. And marriage, yes. <laughs> Did you have to clear up a misconception about the message? I, I, I felt compelled to because so many people reacted so strongly to the You're Not Special line. Um, a lot of people thought, yes, he's finally slapping down these spoiled rich kids, which really was not my purpose at all. As a teacher, one, all my students are important to me, each one, and it doesn't matter what kind of kid he or she might be. Each matters enormously to the teacher, just like as a parent, every one of one's children matters enormously. If then everyone is special, it kind of nullifies the concept of specialness. Look, everybody matters. In fact, whether you're special or not shouldn't matter. Do what you do because you love it, not because you're seeking accolades or material reward for some effort. Do it because you believe in yourself, you believe in the enterprise, um, that you enjoy it. And uh, I think that's important. So many kids today uh, have been trained to believe that you should try for the material reward at the end or the approbation you might get. And to me, that's missing the point. And it interferes with learning. So from a teacher point of view, it's difficult concept to try to work through. I worked on a book once about motivation and the author broke it down into two different types of people. Some people are motivated by external factors, those trophies and mm -hmm. those awards and the accolades and some people are motivated internally and they don't need those external goals to reach for. It's really hard to I think a lot of kids are more naturally externally motivated. I have a two-year-old, and trying to get her to do some basic things, it's much easier to externally motivate her with rewards here and there. Where does the internal motivation come from for kids, do you think? Uh, well, from the teacher, I guess, or the parent point of view as well, it's, it's incumbent upon them to show the child what's interesting about the subject why it's important to invest yourself fully in it without dangling in front of them the carrot or threatening from behind with the stick. Just, uh, you know, if you're going to sit and read a short story in an English class, you sit and read the short because it's interesting, it's cool, look what's going on here. Or if you're trying to tell a kid, look, it's important to clean the turtle tank, um, not because I'm going to reward you if you do, or punish you if you don't, it's important to clean the turtle tank because look at the poor turtle, <laughs> or whatever it might or be. Or look at your fish. Or look at your fish. Uh, it's a wonderful lesson, and I, I often use it at the beginning of a school year with my class. Uh, Professor Agassiz of Harvard, um, who taught zoology, would hand to his students a fish, and the students would wait to be told what they're meant to do with the hopes, probably, that they would be rewarded for their good efforts with a positive grade. But Agassiz would say nothing. And the kids would wait for the instruction. You know, what I want you to notice is, you know, look at the way the scales fall along the back, or notice the fins and count that Agassiz said nothing. And finally, in exasperation, a kid would say, Professor Agassiz, what would you like me to do? And he would say, look at your fish. And so the obedient head would drop and he would look at his fish and he'd give it maybe four, five, six, eight seconds and say, okay, fish, there's my fish. Hello, fish. Uh, and then they would look back up and say, okay, now what would you, I looked at my fish, I was obedient, I did what the authority figure said, 
um, now what would you like me to do? Am I going to get rewarded now? And Professor Agassiz, now what would you like me to do? And Agassiz said, look at your fish. And in dipping his head and looking at the fish the second time, probably that student would notice details of the fish that he hadn't noticed in the first glimpse. In the first glimpse, he looks at the fish and says, there's a fish, I know what fish are, they got a tail, they got a head, those are the gills. If he looks the second time, he notices that, uh, I don't know, if you follow the fish along from the head toward the tail, that the number of rows of scales don't diminish, but the size of the scales do. Now, he hadn't noticed that in the first glimpse. He thought he knew fish, but in the second glimpse, when he looked again, he noticed things. Some fish studiers might be list makers, and so he'll write down on his pad, 17 rows of scales, the scales get narrower as you move from the head toward the tail. Now He's a list maker. Another kid might take out a pen and sketch a picture. And in making the list or sketching the picture requires of the student to look closer at the fish than they would had they not been sketching the drawing or making the list. Well, the third one comes along and says, I'm neither a list maker nor a picture drawer. I'm a hands-on kind of guy. So he picks up the fish and looks at it feels the sliminess of it. It's, he's a tactile learner. Now, a teacher shouldn't necessarily impose on each child, no, look, you must do it this way. The kid is responsible for finding how he or she best learns. The kids then take ownership of it. Um, and the one who picks up the fish looks the fish in the eye and says, oh, isn't it interesting? It has a left eye over there and a right eye over there. And if I cut it in half, hey, what do you know? This fish is bilaterally symmetrical. And he looks up to his classmate and says, hey, look, this fish is. And then he goes, wait a second, you're bilaterally symmetrical. And he has then made a connection between the fish and the classmate and the squirrel in the tree and the horse tied up to the hitching post out the window. And that's when the imagination takes off. And Agassiz, the teacher, has said nothing beyond, look at your fish. I wouldn't ever say that's the only way to teach, but I think it's a highly effective way to teach. And it shows the student, look, responsibility for learning is yours. You're not here to please me. You're not here to please your parents. You're here to learn, to grow, to experience a richer life because of it. That's what I try to teach. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of um, your son's jazz paper, how he was left on his own by... Inadvertently. Either it was yeah. a lazy teacher or a really smart teacher who knew what he was doing. Or an overwhelmed yeah. teacher. <laughs> right. Of whom exactly. there are many. <laughs> um, but your son had this wonderful discovery and developed probably what is going to be a lifelong passion and knowledge of this great topic of jazz by figuring it out on his own. He was taking a course that had a year-ending test, and the year-ending test happened a month before school petered out. And so the teacher thought, okay, I'm going to get the kids busy on a big, important research paper. And he, my son, hemmed and hawed and procrastinated and scratched his head and hoped it would go away, the assignment, and finally he settled down to write a paper about Benny Goodman. And uh, he knew nothing about Benny Goodman. In fact, he picked Benny Goodman because he didn't know a thing about Benny. He wrote the paper. He was very proud of it. He was excited, exhilarated about all things jazz suddenly. Uh, he went from Benny Goodman to Ella Fitzgerald. Then he learned somehow that Woody Allen plays jazz in a jazz club, so he suddenly a Woody Allen guy, which led him to Woody Allen's film set in Rome, which led him to enthusiasm for all things Italian. That same young man, boy, is now a freshman in college, where he took introductory Italian, which comes directly from 
the Benny Goodman paper. He didn't do particularly well if grades are your thing, but if enthusiasm for what he was learning is the thing, it was an overwhelmingly wonderful experience for him, all the way along, all of it, every step of the way. And grades played no role in any of it. I, that's instructive. And I, I see that all the time with my own students as well. The child who cares about his or her grade is missing the point of the experience. And uh, so often that interferes with learning because they're so eager to amass statistics, impressive statistics, GPA, SAT scores, that they play a very careful ball right down the middle of the fairway. They don't take courses they think they might not do well in. They take courses they think will impress an admissions officer somewhere. Well, look, you see, I took AP Physics, and I took AP Psychology, and I took honors this, and I took honors that. And I thought, well, how about taking a few courses you're interested in? Or how about taking a few courses that other people say are really interesting, but you're not particularly interested in now? The other important thing to remember in all this is they're just kids. They're evolving. And what better place for experimentation and stubbing your toe and stumbling a little bit than school? Um, you want them to emerge from school um, confident and enthusiastic and eager to proceed. A concerningly large number of kids are emerging from school underprepared for what follows. Especially now when the cost of college is becoming an impossibility for so many Brutal. people. Because it's so expensive, it encourages them to aim toward a, a career that's lucrative first. That's the first consideration I want to make a lot of money, in part because I've got all these student loans I have to pay back. Um, and there goes the freedom of choosing uh, or indulging an interest or following curiosity. It's too bad. It's, you know, I don't know what the percentage of, of graduates of Harvard, Yale, and Princeton head straight to Wall Street, but, you know, it's... It's a pretty high percentage. What kind of reaction to your speech did you get from people in your community, from parents who you've had, you must have informed your speech in the first place, and, and the kids also? Overwhelmingly and uniformly positive. Um, every, I got uh, sort of two versions. One was, it's about time somebody said that, or um, go, 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 one or the other. Of the thousand emails I got in the immediate aftermath of the speech, I got two very angry, um, I hope you die kind of emails. And they were both from Baltimore Orioles fans who felt that I'd unfairly maligned their team. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, I can handle that. <laughs> um, the really irony is the Orioles did very yeah. well that season, and my <laughs> beloved Red Sox did not, so they got their victory. <laughs> I think what I was really drawn to in your book was how you use your own personal experiences to, you know, talk about your message. I was very moved by it. Thank um, you. When you wrote about how your greatest success on a football field was your commencement speech, that was, I laughed out loud on the train. And then this really nice moment when you described your son Jesse staring at himself in the mirror and awakening his awareness of personhood, mm -hmm. relating it to your own memory yeah. of, of you yeah. with your hand on the banister when you were yes. eight. I mean, that's just beautiful. Now, it sounds like every word was just inside you and came out exactly the way you intended it. Talk about the process I, of writing yes. this book. Yeah. I sat down and started writing in August and wrote every day for about six months. And 
I did virtually no research. I had to look up a couple of statistics, but it really everything just came right out of me. With the first draft, I incorporated a lot of literary analysis that happens in my classroom and tried to make relevant literature. And uh, when I sent in the manuscript for the first deadline, my editor suggested that maybe I should pull back a little on that, and I engaged in about, I don't know, a day of harumphing. And then I realized it's a very good thing to have a smart editor. And so I um, made some adjustments, but really that was it. It really was just uh, straight from the heart, not thinking about so much organization or I just wrote. How did you decide on the chapter subjects? I was thinking about um, how best to break down into components the teenager's experience of high school. And um, I wanted it to have a kind of um, chronological uh, organization. So I begin with parents in which birth figures, and I end with mortality. And I try to take kids through the microcosm that is the high school experience and apply it to larger life lessons. I thought it was great that you started with parents. And I can't recall another time where I had heard explained the, the experiences of parents to kids in such a great way. And what a, what a gift Thank you gave kids. One thing yeah. that's astounding to me year after year kid after kid in my classroom is how little they know about their parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, simple biographical information. They're missed. They, I don't know. How did your parents meet? Oh, I don't know. You know what, are your, what does your mom or dad do for a living? Uh, I, I, I don't know, something with computers. And it's, it's, it's just astonishing to me what they often don't know and don't understand that they should be interested in. Sometimes children, both big and small, they don't see adults as human beings fully demented. They are simply authority figures to them so often with whom they're supposed to comply, that their mission in life is supposed to be to please the authority figure looking over their shoulder. And I work hard to disabuse them of that misconception. Not just biographical information, but also like what motivates them. Exactly. Why your dad may act this way. What he has going on in his life and the pressures. And I just thought... Precisely. Or their, their attitudes about parenting. Right. You know, look, I'm doing this because in the long run I think it's healthier for you to approach this challenge this way. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to just step back now and let you figure it out. If I deign to criticize trends in contemporary parenting, is kids are over-parented. They're... You know, the, the cliché of the helicopter parent, it's real, and that's not coming from nowhere. And a lot of kids are underprepared because of it, because they've never been allowed to navigate on their own and learn that, it, you know, it's a bad idea probably to do things this way. They've only been told it's a bad idea to do things that way, and so they stay away from it. And that way, if they ever find themselves having to navigate those waters, um, they're in trouble. I'm pretty sure it was Aeschylus who said, um, I'm glad there's a, no, I'm paraphrasing, I'm glad there's a storm because I'm learning how to sail. And school can provide those very highly instructive, safe storms. It's not that big a deal if a kid fails a math test. It really isn't, or it shouldn't be a big deal if he fails a math test. But kids act as if their world is collapsing, and the parents get on the phone and come to the rescue in one way or another and try to, try to soft, soften the impact. And that, that, in my view, is a huge mistake. My daughter started calling us Bobby and Karen. She's two. Yeah. 
And I told a couple of people, and they were like, "Oh, you need to, you need to knock that off right away." Absolutely not. And I'm she's, like, this she's, is a wonderful thing. She's discovering, you know. I'm a person. I'm too. a person too. Yes. And, you know, I think this is a little sophisticated for her, but I'd like to think that maybe she is thinking, and mommy and daddy are people too. Did you write the book for kids? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote it with a teenage reader in mind. I wrote it with my students in mind. I wrote it with my own children in mind. Um, if anyone with an interest in children wants to look over their shoulder, that's great. But I really wrote it. They're the audience um, I'm comfortable um, opinionizing in front of. I, I wouldn't. I would feel uncomfortable telling parents how to raise their children. Um, I'm happy for them to take a look at what I think, but I wouldn't presume to lecture that crowd. I, I'm perfectly comfortable lecturing kids. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, I read the afterword to your book where you wrote that in the speech you wish you had laid off the you are not special refrain a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Do you think you'd be here now if you had? Because that seemed to be what people grabbed onto and ran with. Uh, I, the answer, the quick answer to that is I don't know. I think just as, uh, as an aesthetic Thing. It became a little hectoring and redundant, I thought, by the fourth or fifth time. Um, maybe somebody would have found the soundbite anyway. Maybe it wouldn't have taken off the way it did without them. I, I, I don't know. But um, it has bothered me a little bit that people see the speech, as I said a moment ago, as a slap down of rich kids. That's really not what I meant. It was a rhetorical device. I, I, when I began writing the speech, I thought, okay, I'm, it's not the first commencement speech I've given. And I said, okay, what's it going to be like? I'm going to be standing uh, at the podium, and I'll be looking down at the, the graduates, and many of whom I know very well, and they're all different kinds of people. But isn't it interesting that we dress them in this ceremonial garb that each kid, irrespective of, of achievement or personality, is all wearing? So the captain of the football team and the kid who loves computers or skateboards and the prom queen, all of them are wearing the same costume, mm -hmm. ceremonial costume, that is shapeless. So it's, it, it encourages anonymity, does the robe and the cap. And uh, they're all on this level playing field. Isn't that interesting? They're all getting the same diploma. They're going up alphabetically rather than based on achievement or height or athleticism or brilliance. All of those little subtle things are there to tell you, look, your individuality in this ceremony doesn't really matter because it's a commencement, it's a beginning. It's not a celebration of all you've achieved in high school, it's not that. It's now it's time to go on and you're starting, all of you, irrespective of achievement or aptitude, from the same spot. And where you go from here is what matters. And to the world out there, you're not special, you're just another, and there was, I don't know, 3.2 million kids graduating from high school that spring or something. Your identity is determined by you. It's not determined by the adults in your world. Um, I wanted to give them that message and try hard, work hard, work smart, believe in who you are, believe in the importance of what you're doing, and things will work out. I, I ended the speech with um, a concept I felt lots in my own life, and that is selflessness really is the best thing you can do for yourself, ironically. Well, I think you've really written a textbook for life. Oh, you're um, kind. Thank you, Karen. Um, and I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and I want to thank you for joining thank us you. today. Thank you. That was David McCullough talking about his book, You Are Not Special, and Other Encouragements. 
available April 22nd as a hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, read by the author himself. This is Karen Jakonski for Harper Audio Presents. Thank you for listening.